Good morning to each one of you, and it's good to be with you again, and I've certainly been blessed by my time so far here at this camp meeting. Uh, before we get into our message for this morning, I invite you to bow your heads with me as I pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for how you are blessing at this meeting. We know that we are living in very important times in this earth's history, and I pray that this message this morning would lift up Christ and him crucified and that we would have a deeper sense of our need for Jesus and of the hope that he offers for each one of us and of the grace that he offers for each one of us and of the transformation that he offers to each one of us. So I pray that you would speak for, through me and give me just the words that are needed for each one of us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to turn again to our scripture reading for this morning, found in Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13, starting in verse 6. And here we read in scripture, And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Verse 7, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Here we see this messianic prophecy of what it's going to be like someday in heaven as Jesus shows his wounded hands to the redeemed in the kingdom. And clearly in Zechariah 13, this is a messianic prophecy written to the Jews as they're returning to Babylon. And it tells us that a day will come when Jesus will tell the redeemed that it was his own friends that put the wounds in his hands. Now, in the immediate context, it was the Jewish nation that wounded Christ. And Jesus is speaking of this prophetically in this chapter, in Zechariah chapter 13. However, this verse of scripture is used by Ellen White to describe Seventh-day Adventists and how they treated Christ when he sent a message to this church in 1888. Did you know that? So this verse is used to describe the Jewish people in how they rejected Christ as their Messiah nearly 2,000 years ago. And yet we as God's people, those who claim to be his friends can be guilty of this same thing. And yet the amazing thing is that because Jesus loves us, despite the fact that he knew that we would wound him, he was still willing to die for us. 
most of us, if we knew that we would be hurt by someone close to us, would start to put up walls of separation, barriers, whatever it may take, so that we would minimize the pain by someone that we knew would hurt us. And yet Jesus, who knew he would be wounded by those that he came to save, those who were his own professed people in the Jewish nation, and even among Seventh-day Adventists in 1888, and since, Jesus suffered and bled and has his wounded hands on our behalf, knowing ahead of time that we would hurt him. Now, I want to make you think about some things here. Let me just read to you um, a statement. This is a book written by Ron Duffield, Wounded in the House of His Friends, which has some very good history about 1888. And this, this is in the introduction, page X, or Roman numeral 10. He says... Few Adventists may be aware that Ellen White has applied the portrayal of Zechariah 13.6 to the disgraceful treatment of Jesus Christ represented by the Holy Spirit at the hands of his remnant people during the 1888 Minneapolis General Conference session and throughout the controversial aftermath and the years that followed. How few are aware that Christ was wounded among our own church fathers 125 years ago. Is it possible that we are continuing to wound him today by our naive or willful ignorance of the way he was treated in the past. All too often, as we long for Christ's second coming to put an end to our suffering, we forget how he has been wounded and what enormous suffering the long delay has caused him and all heaven. Have you ever thought about the how sin and suffering affect Christ because a lot of times we talk about it's going to be so great when we get to heaven I'm so tired of this world of sin and suffering and we just heard a a great presentation on cancer and all of us have been touched by that in some way or another if if it's not us personally a family member or a friend and we're like I'm so tired of cancer of sickness of sin suffering of broken homes of unfaithfulness, whatever it may be, and it's going to be so nice to get to heaven where there will be no more sin and suffering to afflict me. But what about God? Don't you think he's suffering too? Don't you think he wants this world of sin and suffering to come to and end. And it's amazing when you look at the parallels between the Jewish nation and God's people today, because as the Jewish nation wounded Christ and they rejected him as the Messiah, so too we have made similar mistakes. And I want to read to you a a statement from Last Day Events, page 38. And this is referring to a comparison between the experience of the children of Israel in the wilderness with God's people today. And it's also found in Evangelism, pages 695 and 696. It was written in 1883. For 40 years did unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. The same sins that have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan. In neither case were the promises of God at fault. It is the unbelief, 
the worldliness, unconsecration, and strife among the Lord's professed people that have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. Now, when I see that statement of unbelief, worldliness, unconsecration, and strife that have kept God's people in this world for so many years, that have caused us to delay the Lord's second coming, that tells me that we have not learned to see Jesus for who he is. Because if we were experiencing the goodness of God and the hope that God offers to us through Jesus Christ, we wouldn't want to stay in this world. It's amazing when you look at the children of Israel and you study their history. This is a people that saw the ten plagues poured out on the Egyptians and they were not touched by those plagues. This is a people who were hemmed in by the Egyptian army on one side and the Red Sea on the other and God miraculously moved the pillar of clouds so that it was darkness to the Egyptians and light to them and then he opened up the Red Sea so that they were able to pass through. They saw the miracles of God and then when they came to the water of Mara that was bitter he turned the water from bitter into sweet and then they still murmured and complained to ultimately when the spies went into the promised land and came back to Kadesh Barnea with their evil report and you can read about it in Numbers 13 and 14. Ten of the twelve spies said that they were not able to go in and possess the land. This after everything that God had done for them. Spared them from the outpouring of the ten plagues of Egypt. Parted the Red Sea so that they could pass through. And they even sang the song of Moses of their great deliverance. Of how they had triumphed over the Egyptians. And they had been given the sweet water. They had been given manna. And God had sent water gushing out of a rock. And despite all of that, they still had unbelief. And it's the same sins that have delayed our entrance as modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan. Unbelief. God has done so much for each one of us. If we were to look at the history of our lives, do you realize that it's only a miracle of God's grace that you are part of God's chosen people at this time of earth's history? Of the billions of people here on this earth, we are part of God's chosen people that he has called to prepare the world for his coming. If nothing else, what a privilege that God in his goodness has chosen us. And you know, we're like the children of Israel so many times, I can speak for myself. It's like we can see how God has opened doors for us to work for him. And he's parted the Red Sea, if it will, for us so that we can work for him. And that we have a place on this earth to do his work. And yet when challenges come up, so many of us are like the children of Israel, murmuring and complaining and offering unbelief in spite of all that God has done on our behalf. Listen, if you're questioning God's leading in your life now, what makes you think you're going to go through the time of trouble? It's the same sin. 
and worldliness is part of that as well. You know, we as God's people have morphed in our appearance and our practices of lifestyle and so forth so that we really don't look much different than the world around us because we have forgotten our identity as a people. And unconsecration. We're not fully consecrated to the work that God has given us to do. Ellen White tells us in Testimonies, Volume 9, that the three angels' messages, there's no other work of so great importance that we should allow nothing else to absorb our attention. And yet I'm afraid that so many times as Seventh-day Adventists, we've become absorbed by getting ahead in this world and we've forgotten why we're really here. And then the last point, strife. Boy, is that not true today. You know, in 1888, there was plenty of strife to go around, arguing over the law in Galatians and whether or not the justification by faith that was presented by Jones and Wagner was biblical or if it was going to prepare people to receive the mark of the beast. Those were the debate of that day. And there was strife among God's people that prevented God's spirit from being poured out. And I'm afraid that if we're not careful today, that the strife that has come into the church over the issues that are being hotly debated today could prevent us from receiving the Spirit if we are not connected to the Lord. Now listen, I am not saying that we lower the standard of truth and just accept whatever is out there. I certainly believe in standing for truth, but stand for it in the Spirit of Christ. And love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Don't be developing a spirit of bitterness and animosity towards those who disagree with you on the issues that are out there right now. Now I want to read to you a statement from Ellen White that goes along with this concept of Christ being wounded and of the pain that the delay has caused Christ and of the pain that this world of sin and suffering continues to cause God. This is from Education, page 263. Those who think of the result of hastening or hindering the gospel, think of it in relation to themselves and to the world. Few think of its relation to God. And I'll readily admit, my growing up years and even until recently, primarily when I think of going to heaven, I think of it with relation to myself and my family and to the world around us, but I'm not thinking about what it means to God. And I'm trying to reshape my thinking on this. And I hope that this message will cause you to think about this as well. Few think of its relation to God. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our creator. All heaven suffered in Christ's agony. But that suffering did not begin or end with his manifestation in humanity. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception sin has brought to the heart of God. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses. Do you realize that we have dull senses? That when we think of the cross, a lot of times we don't even realize the magnitude of what Christ and God the Father have done for us to make salvation possible for us. The amazing, immeasurable love of God in offering Jesus to die for us. We take it so often for granted and just say, oh, I'm thankful that Jesus died for our sins. And yet we're not thinking of the pain that sin has caused God. 
And it wasn't just on the cross that from its very inception, when the mystery of iniquity entered into that heavenly kingdom, the pain that sin has caused God. Can you imagine the pain that God suffered when he lost a third of the angels? And when he lost Lucifer, the covering cherub, or I mean, the the one who was next to um, Christ in, in the mercy seat. The, 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 the great pain, the loss that God suffered in that. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception sin has brought to the heart of God. And when you realize the amount of pain that God was willing to go through to send Jesus to the earth to die on this cross, it starts to open up a picture to us in a greater degree the amount of love that God has for us. That despite the pain that sin has caused him, he was willing to go through the greatest pain possible to redeem us. And it's that kind of love that will motivate us to follow him. And when we start to see the love of God in that way, and when his love begins to motivate our hearts to love him and to follow him, we're going to stop asking questions like, what's wrong with this? Why can't I do that? Because sin causes pain to God. And when you truly love someone, you don't want to hurt them, right? You know, I love my wife very much. I'm sorry she can't be with us this weekend. The last thing I ever want to do is to hurt her. Shouldn't it be the same with God? If we really love God, we're not going to be asking questions, is this a salvational issue? We're not going to be trying to lower the standard and just squeak by through the pearly gates. Whew, we barely made it. That was a close call. And it's only by the grace of God we're going to make it anyway. But we're not going to be intentionally lowering a standard because when we truly love God, we're going to see that sin has caused intense pain to God. And the cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception sin has brought to the heart of God. Continuing on in Education 263, she says, Every departure from the right, every deed of cruelty, Every failure of humanity to reach his ideal brings grief to him. Do you realize that? When there came upon Israel the calamities that were the sure result of separation from God, subjugation by their enemies, cruelty, and death, it is said that his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. And that's quoting Judges 10, 16, and Isaiah 63, 9. Continuing on, she says, Our world is a vast laser house or sick house, a scene of misery that we dare not allow even our thoughts to dwell on. Did we realize it as it is, the burden would be too terrible. Yet God feels it all. 
in order to, de- to destroy sin and its results, he gave his best beloved and he has put it in our power through cooperation with him to bring this scene of misery to an end. Did you hear that? God feels it all. And in order to destroy sin and its results, he gave his best beloved, that's Jesus, and he has put it in our power through cooperation with him to bring this scene of misery to an end. So what's your motivation for taking the gospel of the kingdom to this world, which is the next sentence in her statement? Is it so that you can bring your misery to an end? Or is it so that you can bring the misery that God suffers from that you should love with all you should love God with all of your heart and if you love him with all of your heart you should be motivated to bring his misery to an end and yet you know one of our problems is is because we have lost sight of the cross and because we've lost sight of this immeasurable free gift Ellen White calls this the gift of justification, God's rich free gift that he's offering to us. Because we've lost sight of that, we become comfortable in this world and we start to say, you know, it's not that bad here. I'm pretty comfortable. I could get used to this until Jesus comes. And yet Jesus who suffered and God the Father who suffered and who are continuing to suffer as long as this world of sin continues would like nothing better than to bring this sin and suffering to an end. And we as his children should be motivated to to cooperate with him so that his suffering can come to an end. Now, that's a different kind of motivation, isn't it? And the only way it can happen is if we truly love him. And the only way that we can truly love him is to see more clearly just what he has done for us. As Ellen White said, the cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception sin has brought to the heart of God. You know, I have two girls now. One is four, one is nearly two. Now that I'm a a parent, I'm starting to realize with much deeper appreciation what my parents have done for me. And it's something you can't really understand until you're a parent yourself. And I remember when I was a kid, I would think, well, when I become a parent, I'm going to do it like this and not like that. And yet I find that I am doing things the way my parents did it. And I realize that most of the time they were right. But when I think of my father especially, and he passed away now, it's been 12 years ago. He had multiple sclerosis. And when I was in my... Uh, between the ages probably of 8 and 13, 15 onward. Um, he worked as a physician, in an, as an emergency room physician. And he would, uh, based on where we lived, he was required to drive fairly long distances to work shifts in various hospitals. And there were... 
there were a number of reasons that he did that. Number one, it was important to him that we lived in the country. And secondly, he wanted us to get a Christian education. And I didn't really understand at the time the type of sacrifice that he was making, but he was getting up at four in the morning and driving two, three hours away to work shifts in an ER to bring money in so that a family of four children could get a Christian education and go through and, and ha live in the country and all of that. And at the time, I did not realize the type of sacrifice he was making because of his love for the family that, that he had. And unfortunately, as he got older, his health wore down, and he w had to go into early retirement when I was in college. And by then, I started to have a deeper appreciation for what he had done, and especially now that I'm a physician and I have my own children, I realized to a greater degree the type of sacrifice that he made, because I'm not getting up at four in the morning to drive two hours to go to work. I live ten minutes from my job. And I wish now that I could go back and thank him for everything he did. But that's going to have to wait for another time on that resurrection morning. And I look forward to that day. But that is just an illustration of how our senses can be dull. And as humans, there is no way that we can really, truly, properly understand the sacrifice that God has made for us by sending Jesus to die for us, but the closest that we can come to understanding it is by coming to the foot of the cross. Which is why Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, page 83, it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. If we would be saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. And then continuing, as we associate together, we may be a blessing to one another. If we are Christ's, our sweetest thoughts will be of him. We shall love to talk of him. And as we speak to one another of his love, our hearts will be softened by divine influences. Beholding the beauty of his character, we shall be changed into the same image from glory to glory. You know, one of the things that I think, you know, I talked about yesterday about this revival of true godliness that's the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs. One of the ways that we can gain this revival is to spend that thoughtful hour each day contemplating the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. As you see Jesus going through Gethsemane and as you see Jesus on the cross at Calvary, that is going to bring you into closer communion with Christ. And you know, it was my father himself who told me when I was a child that as Adventists we run the risk of become, becoming immune to the depth and the power of the cross. We can just take for granted, yes, Jesus died for my sins. I accept him as my savior. And yet it's just a th theological, intellectual ascent without the heart responding to its very core, to the depth of God's love for us.
You know, I want to read to you a statement from Dr. E.J. Wagner and of how the cross affected him. He was one of the two messengers that God raised up in 1888 to give a clear message to prepare people to receive the outpouring of the latter rain. And this was written in 1916, just before he died. And he says, I began my real study of the Bible 34 years ago. That was in 1882. At that time, Christ was set forth before my eyes, evidently crucified for me. I was sitting a little apart from the body of the congregation in the large tent at a camp meeting in Healdsburg, California, one gloomy, one gloomy Sabbath afternoon. I have no idea what the subject of the discourse was, not a word nor a text have I ever known. All that has re remained with me was what I saw. Suddenly a light shone round me, and the tent was for me far more brilliantly lighted than if the noonday sun had been shining, and I saw Christ hanging on the cross, crucified for me. In that moment, I had my first positive knowledge, which came like an overwhelming flood, that God loved me and that Christ died for me. You know, I believe one of the reasons why his preaching had so much power is because he experienced personally Jesus as his personal Savior. You know, you can know about Jesus as the Savior of the world, but that's one thing that's different than experiencing Jesus as your personal Savior. And a lot of times as Adventists, we're good, and this, this was what the Adventists of 1888 were struggling with. They were good about knowing about Jesus and about knowing about the law of God and of preaching the necessity of the Ten Commandments. And all of that is good, but they didn't know Jesus. They didn't trust in his grace. They didn't trust in his love. They hadn't experienced the hope that Jesus offers. And I would challenge you today, if you have not experienced Jesus as your personal Savior, and you may have in the past, many of us have at some point in our life, but if you've lost sight of Jesus, and Ellen White says many had lost sight of Jesus, meaning they had seen him at one point, but they lost sight of him. If you've lost sight of Jesus, now is the time to fix your eyes on him again. And I love the theme for this camp meeting, and I love this picture right here on the, on the platform. Jesus loves you. And that's not just a trite statement. He has suffered from the very inception of sin, and yet he has risked all of heaven so that we could gain salvation. And I want to talk to you about three struggles involved with salvation. One is the struggle in the sacrifice of the Father. The second is the struggle in the sacrifice of the Son. And the third is our struggle. You know, a lot of times when we think of the plan of salvation, we just think, you know, God is so good that he sent Jesus to die for us, and that's great. Now we just accept his sacrifice. And that's all true, but this sacrifice and this gift that is offered to us did not come without a struggle. 
It wasn't just an automatic snap of the fingers in the heavenly courts where God the Father looked at Jesus the Son, and as soon as there was sin, yes, Ellen White says as soon as there was sin, there was a Savior, but it wasn't like a snap of the fingers where God the Father looks at God the Son and says, okay, you're going to the cross? Okay, good, we, we got it figured out. If you read about it in early writings, page 151, Ellen White is describing a scene where a heavenly angel describes the experience of the Father in giving his Son to this world. This is early writings, page 151, said the angel. Now Ellen White is quoting the angel, quote, Think you that the Father yielded up his dearly beloved Son without a struggle? No, no. It was even a struggle with the God of heaven whether to let guilty man perish or to give his beloved son to die for him. God the Father struggled to give up Jesus, his only begotten son, to die for us. And in the Greek, when you read John 3.16 where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That word begotten means the only one like himself. They had been the way they had been throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Now realize, when the Father gave up the Son, their, the dynamic of their relationship changed forever. Because Jesus now is back in heaven with glorified humanity, but he is now not able to be omnipresent the way he was before he came to this earth. The dynamics of their relationship have changed to some extent. And for the father to give that up, there was a struggle. It wasn't an automatic snap of the fingers. But John 3.16, which we take for granted as well, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. As much as the father loved the son, and I would submit to you today that there has never been a deeper love than exists between the father and the son, but God loved us so much that he was willing to give up that unique dynamic forever so that we could be saved. Is that not amazing? I mean, when you see that kind of sacrifice from the Father, wow. What love that God has for us, that he would yield up his dearly beloved son. But it was not without a struggle, which tells you that the gift that the Father gave to us in sending his son was the highest value gift that he could have given, which tells you something about the value he places on us. Do you value the gift he's willing to give you based on the value of the gift he has given us? What an amazing gift. And notice, it was not just a struggle for the Father. When Jesus came to this earth, he struggled as well when it came down to the very end. Turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. So Jesus in his humanity is praying to his father and he's saying, Father, this cup, let it pass from me. Now this cup that he was to drink, this is the cup that we see in the book of Revelation that is full of the wrath of God, which signifies eternal death. And this was a cup that the son did not want to drink. Humanly speaking. But he submitted his will to the Father. Saying, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now he's putting the emphasis not on his will, but on the Father's will. He's saying, in, in my will, Father, I don't want to drink this cup. But I'm going to do your will. Whatever it is. I'm just letting you know that my will would not be to drink this cup. Now, we know that the Father's will was for him to drink the cup. Now, what was Christ's motivation as he struggles as to whether or not to go through with the sacrifice to save us as the guilty race? What was the motivation that Christ had that was set before him to drink this cup? Desire of Ages, page 690. The words fall tremblingly from the pale lips of Jesus. O my Father, if this cup may not pass from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Three times he has uttered this prayer. Three times has humanity shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. Notice, Jesus is shrinking from it. It's not like he's automatically just going through nothing to it. This is going to just be the way it is. Jesus shrunk away from it just as the Father struggled to give up the Son. Jesus in his humanity is shrinking away from the sacrifice in his humanity. But then Ellen White goes on and says, But now the history of the human race comes up before the world's Redeemer. He sees that the transgressors of the law, if left to themselves, must perish. He sees the helplessness of man. He sees the power of sin. The woes and lamentations of a doomed world rise before him. He beholds its impending fate, and his decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. He accepts his baptism of blood that through him perishing millions may gain everlasting life. Well, I hope that you're gaining a sense of the love of God for us as you see the struggle of the Father and of the Son as they struggled as to whether or not to go through the sacrifice, but God so loved the world he gave his only Son. And Jesus, when he sees humanity, if left to their own fate, would perish, he makes his decision that he will die for us so that perishing millions may gain everlasting life. And you know, Ellen White says in Manuscript Releases, volume 21, page 37, hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel. Now I want you to think about this as Jesus is hanging on the cross. Think about what he goes through as he dies on the cross. He's sweating great drops of blood in Gethsemane because of the agony that he is going through. And then he's beaten and whipped and scourged. And then they place the cross on his shoulders and he is so weakened that he can't carry his own cross. Then when he comes to Golgotha and he comes to lay down on the cross 
there's the two other male factors, the one on his right hand, the one on his left, who as they drive the nails through their hands, they're kicking and cursing and screaming like any sinner would do in that situation. And yet Christ, who is placed in the center, signifying that he's the chiefest criminal, as they put him on the cross, he opens not his mouth. Isaiah 53, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, yet he opened not his mouth. And he quietly puts out his right hand, and he quietly puts out his left hand, and he's not kicking or screaming or fighting back. He's saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, so many of us, if we were placed in that situation, we would be saying, don't you know who I am? Don't you know all I've done for you? How could you treat me this way? Look at all of the things that I've done for you. And you think about how you respond under provocation. What are you like when those closest to you, those who are dearest to you, provoke you? Because the cross is a revelation to our dull senses of how we should live on this earth by faith. That Jesus is our example in all things. And as he was being put to death, as he was being wounded in the house of his friends, the words that came from his lips were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And friends, that's a high calling. When you think about the controversies in the church today, what is your spirit towards those who you disagree with? Are you saying, boy, they're going to go to the wrong place. Just wait till the judgment comes. They're going to be in for it. Or do you have the spirit of Jesus? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Boy, by the grace of God, I pray that the, the sacrifice of Jesus will motivate me to respond to his love and his grace, to the rich free gift that he is offering to us. Because we see that God the Father, he struggled to give up the Son, but he, he gave up the Son. Because he loves us so much. And the fact that he struggled to give up the son, but was still willing to do so, shows us how much God the Father loves us. And Jesus shrank three times from going through with drinking the cup of eternal condemnation. But he drank it because of how much he loves us. So when we come to Galatians 2.20... And we read that verse that says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I'll admit, when I've read that verse, a lot of times I've put the focus on, I'm crucified with Christ, Christ lives in me. But that last part of the verse is so important. He loved me. He gave himself for me. And listen, Christ did not die on the cross without a struggle. So don't think that being crucified with Christ will come without a struggle. 
You hear me? The father struggled to give up the son. The son struggled to go through with the sacrifice. And our struggle is to be crucified with Christ, which is complete and entire surrender. And let me read to you the statement from Selected Messages 1. I referred to it yesterday. I'm going to read to you the, the whole section. Volume 1, Selected Messages, page 366. But while God can be just and yet justify the sinner through the merits of Christ, no man can cover his soul while the garments of Christ's righteousness with the garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sins or neglecting known duties. God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place, and in order for man to retain justification, there must be continual obedience through act of living faith that works by love and purifies the soul. Now listen, God is just, and he justifies the sinner through his merits, not ours. And I want to put an emphasis on this you know a lot of times we'll talk about victory over sin and how Christ can give us complete victory and I absolutely 100% believe in that and yet in the same breath many times we're wondering in our mind did God really forgive me for that time when I did such and such and you know what you're doing when you're questioning the forgiveness of God you're questioning his promises and you're lacking faith in his merits. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you don't believe that you've been forgiven, guess what, friends? You're never really going to believe that you can have complete victory. Victory over sin begins by fully trusting in the merits of Christ. When you fully trust in the merits of Christ, when you fully believe that you have been forgiven, that is justification by faith, and that faith then sustains you to live the victorious Christian life. And the only way that you will trust in the merits of Christ for forgiveness is when you see that God was serious about forgiving you by the struggle that the father and the son both went through to pay the penalty for sin. Listen, God the Father didn't send Jesus to this earth, and Jesus didn't go through, the, through with a sacrifice to then make it as hard as possible for you to receive that free gift. It's not like God the Father sent Jesus to this earth, and then Jesus died, and then they have the free gift, and they're playing keep away. But there are conditions, and, and that, the conditions are faith and believing that you have been forgiven and then surrendering and cooperating with Christ to receive his gift of righteousness by surrendering completely, the entire surrender of the heart. Now, when you see what God gave up by giving Jesus as a gift, and when you see what Jesus gave up by being crucified on the cross, that sacrifice by the Father and the Son should be enough, and it is enough if by faith we allow our hearts to respond to Christ's love to motivate us to surrender our hearts completely to him. And that is our great struggle as Adventists. Are we willing to fully give our hearts to Jesus? 
Bible Echo A for 1, 1892 says, Those whom God has appointed to become instructors must know by personal experience what it is to have Christ made unto them wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. But let no soul imagine that the gaining of eternal life through the finished work of Christ will involve no struggle, no conflict. There will be constant battles against their own inclinations and hereditary and cultivated tendencies. So there is a struggle, and it's the surrender on a daily basis to Jesus. But again, Jesus is our hope. He was wounded for our transgressions. And it wasn't just the Jewish nation of old that put those wounds in his hands. We as a church did again in 1888, and individually, as we turn our backs on God, if we're not willing to accept his sacrifice, and as we go against his will and against his word, we crucify the Son of God afresh, as Hebrews 6, 6 says. The amazing thing is, is that despite all that we have done to go against God, God still loves us, and he's still drawing after us, and he's, through his spirit, pricking our hearts and our consciences of his goodness and of his love and how he has a better way and a better life for us if we will simply respond to him. And he has given this church a message that would prepare us to receive the latter rain. And I'm going to close with a statement from Testimonies to Ministers, page 91. The Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith and the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, and his changeless love for the human family. All power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure. Friends, I want to challenge you today. If you've lost sight of Jesus... If you've lost sight of the matchless charms of Christ, which is what Ellen White says this message is, now is the time to reconnect with Jesus. And the other thing she says about this message, it was a message that would lay the glory of man in the dust. Do you realize that we are all dirt and dust? Now is not the time to be looking to man to lead us to heaven. Now is not the time for us to be looking to our favorite preachers and evangelists and pastors to say, hey, did you see what they wrote about women's ordination? You, that, that's Whatever they believe is what I believe, and what I believe is what they believe. Now is not the time to be having that kind of mentality. 
Now is the time to be looking to Christ and to Christ only and to his matchless grace and to his matchless charms so that his love will be shed abroad in your heart so that people will see that you have been changed by Jesus, that you don't just have a knowledge of the word and the theory of truth, but that you have Jesus in your hearts and that your heart draws people like a magnet to you because you are like Jesus and you have been changed by him and that people are attracted to you because they want to be closer to someone who is like Jesus. Now is the time not for us to be digging our heels in with our bad attitudes and our bad habits and our bad practices and saying, well, at least I know the truth, so I'm going to go on through somehow. No, no, no. Now is the time for us as God's people to go back to 1888 and to say, where have I lost sight of Jesus? Where is Jesus missing from my heart? Is Jesus shining forth through my spirit and through my character? Because through his grace and through his power, I want his love to shine forth through my heart so that it will cause others to be attracted to Jesus as well so that we can, through his grace, develop his character so that his suffering and misery will be brought to an end as we cooperate with him to take the gospel to the world in this generation so that Jesus can come back and so that he will no longer continue to suffer from the pain of having wounded hands by the sins that we commit. And you know, I believe that someday very soon Jesus is coming back. And on that day, we are going to come into the heavenly kingdom and we are going to cast all of our crowns at Jesus' feet knowing that we are only there based on his merits and his goodness. And Jesus is going to hold out his hands and at that moment we are going to see the wounds in his hands and someone is going to ask him, what are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And when we hear him say that, we are not going to be thinking about the Jewish nation. We won't even necessarily be thinking about the church in 1888. We will be thinking of what we did to put those wounds there. And yet, despite all of that, his love for us changed our hearts so that despite the fact that we put those wounds there, it was through those wounds that he saved us and that we will be there to see those very wounds. What an amazing Savior. As I close, if you feel in your heart that you've been a, a good Adventist, you've been eating a healthy diet, You've been reading the right books. You've been having your devotions. But in some way, you've lost sight of Jesus. And you, you're saying in your heart, you know, today, I need to find hope in Christ. I need to come back to the foot of the cross. 
And I need those wounded hands to touch my heart so that my life will be transformed into the image of Jesus. And look, this is not a call for everyone. There, there may be many of you here that are already having this experience. But I know that there's at least someone in this room today who is struggling with the cares of this life and all the stuff that is around us. And you've allowed your eyes to lose sight of Jesus. You have not been looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and you're saying, I want to come back to the foot of the cross and see Jesus again as my Savior. I would invite you to come down to the front here, and I'm going to offer a prayer for anyone who would like to come and who would like to say, I want Jesus to be my Savior. And I want his love to be shed abroad in my heart so that I will become a kind Christian. That I will be a Christ-like Adventist. I will no longer be an Adventist in name only with the theory of the truth, but that I will have the love of Jesus in my heart. Jesus is coming soon and he is preparing a people that will have his spirit and his character. And I would invite as far as possible um, you to kneel as we have prayer. Father in heaven, you're an amazing God. And we are but frail dust. And it's amazing to me that despite our sinfulness, you were willing to send Jesus to die on this earth because you love us so much. And Jesus, as he saw our weakness and of what would happen to us if we were left to our own fate, was willing to drink the cup. Thank you, Lord, for doing what you have done for us. And Lord, I pray today that we would no longer have the experience of losing or having lost sight of Jesus. May Jesus ever be before us. Not a paper Jesus, not a theoretical Jesus, but the living Christ. The Jesus of Scripture. The Jesus who died for us. The Jesus who was raised again for us. Who is in heaven right now, interceding for us because of his love for us. May we be in tune with him as never before. As this world is coming to an end, may Jesus truly be our friend. And may his spirit flow from our hearts to all we come in contact with. And as we see things happening in the world and the church around us, may your spirit be poured out upon us so that the spirit of Christ will go forth to the rest of this world. Thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that you were will, willing to send Jesus and that he was willing to allow his hands to be wounded for us so that we could be in the kingdom with you. And may that day come soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.